Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto. Welcome to Thriller Insider. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls from around the world, welcome back to another episode of Thriller Insider. Today we are talking the Digital Economy Report 2019, and you're probably wondering, Carr, what is this? <laughs> I know, I know. I've been doing research today. I've been doing research on what the United States is doing, what China's doing, how the Libra token kind of fits in that, how this new China cryptocurrency fits with that. And it's all led me to this report, believe it or not. Um, this is from the United Nations. And they publish, it used to be called the digital, it used to actually be called the information economy report. Then it got turned into the digital economy report. But um, it's basically trying to give us uh, an understanding of what's happening in today's fast changing environment. Um, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development helps with this by examining the implications of the digital economy, especially for developing countries. And ultimately, these new technologies, especially AI, blockchain, uh, they all lead to major shifts in our labor markets, uh, including, you know, probably disappearance of jobs for some. Um, and it affects everybody around the world on a massive scale. So they try to put together this report uh, to give out there to people, uh, governments and societies, whoever it is, uh, academia, to, to take a look and look at what kind of um, information that they're providing. Um, so it's a really good piece of information. A lot of a lot of the times it doesn't get reported at all. Uh, I just found out about it today. <laughs> uh, it was kind of just a stumble upon thing, but it just got released here August. Uh, actually, no, not August. Got released here September 6th. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. Okay. Before we dive into this economy report, I want to touch on what uh, Federal Chairman Powell discussed here in Switzerland. Now, this is a big deal because we're kind of looking at everything macro-wise, especially when it comes to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I, we, need, we need an understanding of what the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, uh, Jerome Powell is saying, right? So let's take a listen. What are the macroeconomic implications of this decline? Yes, yeah, so, so I think... Um Really, for tw the last 20 years, we've seen the, what we would call the neutral interest rate decline by at least two or three percentage points. And, and there are people making arguments that it's actually more than that. Um, <clears throat> and um, so why is that happening? It's, it's, uh, it's a lot of factors. It's, it's the aging of the population, which leads to um, a higher appetite for safe assets and more savings relative to investment. It's low productivity. Um, it's low growth. It's all of those things. And... So you get in a world where um, the, the neutral real rate is low, but inflation is also low. And what that means, if you add those two together, you get the interest rate. So the implications are, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, central banks will have less ability to counteract a downturn by cutting rates. Typically, in the United States, since World War II, we've cut more than 
five full percentage points, or as we say, 550 basis points we've cut in a typical downturn. Now our, our, our federal funds rate is about 2.1%, so we won't have that ability here. So the implication, one implication is that we need other tools, and so when we got to the zero lower bound during the financial crisis, we used quantitative easing, and we used mm. forward guidance about the interest rate, and we feel that they worked, although are not perfect substitutes for, you know, for, for the interest rate. I mean, I think one, one essential fe feature of this from our standpoint is not to allow inflation to move materially below target, because if that happens, then that will work its way into interest rates. So we're, we're very committed to defending the 2% inflation target on a symmetric basis. We've seen in low inflation become the case moving down, and you, you get on this, uh, you seem to get on this road that it's hard to get off of, and we're, we're, we're trying not to get on that road and actually defend our 2% inflation target where it is now. Thomas, your policy on that topic? Well, I think this is one of the absolutely key questions uh, at this moment, and uh, having this lower neutral rate is a difficulty for pension funds. So all these systems were built on higher in in interest rates. Uh, this is a real phenomenon, not only a monetary phenomenon, so it, we have these uh, difficulties. And it's very difficult to explain that to the public, so this is, uh, comes in addition. And, of course, the room of maneuver for central banks to react to certain shocks is smaller today than it used to be uh, maybe 20, 20 years ago. And as Jay mentioned, this means that central banks have to find ways in order to have uh, instruments available in case it's necessary to have an impact on monetary conditions. This is much more demanding than it used to be uh, 20 years ago. This is true. It gets more and more difficult, or challenging, let's say challenging. Well, ch the challenge is uh, in, in a way that uh, we probably, on a global scale, missed to some extent the normalization. So we went all the way down to zero, even negative, with the hope that uh, everything will go back at least to some normality, but that did not happen because of the, uh, the economic cycle and because inflation did not come back exactly as expected. And now we are a little bit in a new situation where on low level of inflation, already low interest rates, maybe some further instruments are necessary. And this is the big debate uh, that you just started. And he was there with uh, chairman of the Swiss National Bank, Thomas J. Jordan. Um, they were both taking questions, uh, trying to answer um, I guess kind of the outlook and monetary policy um, for where the world is headed. Um, ultimately, he said that uh, the economy is performing well and is in a good place. Um, he also said that the consumer market uh, remains strong, but that manufacturing is moving sideways to down. Uh, he also did cite risks to the outlook, uh, including slowing global growth and low inflation. He did say that trade uncertainty is hampering business development and investment, which has been a focal point for the Fed this year. And of course, he was cited as a major factor in the July's decision to cut rates for the first time this cycle. So this had a lot of people kind of squirming, right? Uh, everybody feels like the economy is headed towards a recession, and that hasn't gone away uh, even after this speech. Uh, what's more interesting about this speech in Switzerland is what he was talking about when discussing Libra. Take a listen. I think, I don't think so, no. So I think, um, you know, of course we're following very carefully the, the whole uh, question of digital currencies. It's not something that we're actively considering. Other central banks uh, more than we are. 
Um, and for us, it raises substantial, significant issues that we'd want to see, you know, carefully resolved. For example, um, you know, the, if, if you think about one a, a currency that was for the United States or for, frankly, a multinational currency, it would really need to be cyber secure because, I mean, it's one thing to, to be able to counterfeit paper currency. It's another thing to be able to hack into a cyber currency and create with a computer however much of it you want. So the cyber issues are, are quite daunting. Um, it's also not clear to us that there's really demand for this. So, you know, consumers have plenty of payment options. They're not clamoring for this. Um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm ruling it out, but I think there really are. There's another question, too, which is if people are leaving their money in a cyber currency and holding it there, mm. they're not putting it in a bank. What happens with banks is people deposit their money and banks lend the money out. So what will happen to intermediation, the whole intermediation process? What will happen if everyone's just, you know, investing in this in this uh, cyber currency. So I would say, look, we're in favor of, favor of financial innovation. We're, we're following this, these things very carefully, but we don't see cyber, we don't see digital currencies uh, from a central bank as something happening in the near term. Thomas, how do you see it? Well, we looked at that very carefully, and uh, we have a similar view, probably. So we do not believe that it's a very good idea to have a central bank digital currency for the public at large exactly for the same reason. And we also have a very efficient payment infrastructure in Switzerland, so there's almost no advantage to make a payment with a digital currency, central bank digital currency, for the public at large. What may be a little bit a different situation, so if we have new financial market infrastructures <coughs> where banks, among them, trade uh, securities, and, and you, you need to also create some new money that comes from central banks that make this system more efficient. So we are looking at that very carefully, but this is not yet sure. So it's not yet sure whether new forms of securities are more efficient than old ones and whether this new infrastructure actually need digital uh, central bank currency. It's well possible that the link to the central bank may be as efficient as uh, today and, uh, and in this system. But it's a very important and very uh, interesting question and uh, we're also happy to be part of this uh, BIS Innovation Hub that looks at those issues uh, uh, very carefully and uh, I think it's very important that central banks are aware, aware of all these uh, innovations and about all the possibilities. Absolutely, absolutely. What is your take on the Libra, the new Facebook currency, with headquarters in Geneva? So... Um I, I want to start again by saying that you know we, we do want to see responsible financial innovation. We think that's key. We think that's, that will enable people to be better served and drive costs out of the system. So it's important that we be open to that. I think, as I've, as I've said before about Libra, um, the, with Facebook's very large network of more than a couple billion people, uh, a, a stable coin could be systemically important very quickly if it were to have wide adoption, and that's not a foregone conclusion. But because of that, um, we would think that, that, that Libra would need to be held to the highest standards. It could be systemically important right away, potentially. And because of that, it would, it would have to be held to the highest regulatory and supervisory expectations. It is, it, it is um, not obvious to see how that would happen under our current regulatory system. Uh, so it, it's, it's the kind of thing where we've said this is not going to be a sprint to implementation. This is going to be a, a careful, thoughtful conversation about how 
how we can do our job of protecting the public from cyber risk and, and all the other risks that, that come uh, with something that's systemically important. So if, if I take your answers all in all, you're quite optimistic. Is that true? Well, about, about things in general, yes. Yeah. But I would say... <laughs> about Libra. You always want to be an optimist. But I would say that I would say Libra will, has a, a, a burden of proof to carry. Again, we, we're not... Uh, we're not, we're, we're not, um, we don't want to just be an obstacle about this, but I think it's appropriate for us to say what we think our expectations will be, and appropriately so, they'll be very, very high for something that could have such broad adoption, and, and uh, they'll have to be met, and, and so that's the way to think about Libra, I believe. And so what I got out of this was kind of a twofold thing. Uh, first off, make no mistake, uh, Federal Chairman Jerome Powell is there to make sure that the U.S. dollar stays the reserve currency of the world. Uh, he will say whatever he has to say and do whatever he has to do to make sure that that stays uh, the same, right? Uh, ultimately, that's in the best interest of the United States government to make to ensure that that you know takes place and that stays that stays appropriate. So, with that being said, I understand where he's coming from. I totally get it. I understand it. But one thing that um, I think would be kind of a silly mistake to make is to understand what we're looking at. And this is where the whole digital economy report comes into play. Um, for the first time, I guess would probably be in a, probably at least since I've seen it this past decade, we're really starting to see these global superpowers of so the United States and China. Uh, and they're pretty much leading the way in digital economy. Um, almost like a, I hate to say for lack of a better word, like a cold war, like race to digital dominance in this kind of internet age, blockchain age that we're in. Um, and this digital economy report kind of alludes to that. Um, and I'll, I'll put this in the show notes, but blockchain technologies are a form of distributed ledger technologies, this stuff that we all know. Uh, but one of the key aspects to this is that uh, this report tells us that open source platforms such as Ethereum allow programmers to develop decentralized applications, however, one challenge for blockchains is that for some applications, they require substantial, reliable electricity supply for processing. As you know, Ethereum's moving over to proof of stake. But according to this uh, business value forecast that's built into this uh, UN uh, digital economy report, they say that um, there will be a larger, more focused investments and many more successful models in 2022 to 2026. And these are expected to explode in 2027 to 2030, reaching more than three trillion globally. Uh, that's a worldwide estimate here from 2018. It's probably gone even higher by now. Currently, China alone accounts for nearly 50% of all patent applications for technology families relating to blockchains. And together with the United States, they represent more than 75% of all such patent applications. So these emerging digital uh, technologies are starting to become a trend for this these two big global superpowers, right? The United States and China. They're both leading the world in these two um, and into the blockchain technology area, right? Not only do these two nations hold 90% of the market capitalization value of the world's 70 largest digital platform companies, they also hold a <laughs> large percent of the major internet companies out there like Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and then you have um, Tencent as well as Alibaba from China. 
So this aggressive expansion of these companies is no doubt a deciding factor in the dominance of the U.S. and China. And this is where Facebook comes in. This is why it's super important. And it's kind of on the topic of a lot of people outside of the U.S. Inside the U.S., we're more like, eh, don't trust Facebook, whatever. Uh, they can go make their stable coin. I'm not paying attention to that. Right. But to the outside uh, people of the U.S., they see Facebook as being a competitor to what Tencent is in China or what Alibaba is in China, where it's like everybody uses it. Right. And it's this it's this uh, it's this easier solution to just pay with Alibaba or, or Tencent in China. Right. Just using QR codes and everybody uses it. So. Outside of the U.S., Facebook and this cryptocurrency that they're trying to make, Libra, is very important. This is why you're seeing Jerome Powell answering questions like that here in Switzerland. This is why most people, even China themselves, are kind of going on this kind of spearhead attack saying, hey, we're releasing our cryptocurrency here. This is when we're doing it. This is when it's happening. And they're doing this because they want the remedy, the uh, the yawn. They want that to be a competing currency to the U.S. dollar ultimately. Right. This is why they're creating their own Chinese cryptocurrency. Um, they do have Tencent Alibaba that they use primarily. And most people, most people that are using uh, Tencent and Alibaba in China wouldn't even notice the fact that they got their own China cryptocurrency because everything's digital. So it would only be a way for China to really monitor exactly what's going on within uh, those applications and to kind of control the uh, existing rate of how much uh, supply is out there in, in regards to the to the yawn. So make no mistake, this is more than just about just Facebook, Libra and 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 you know China's digital cryptocurrency this is what the United Nations are alluding to in this report and this has more to do about what we're seeing here in this digital cold war ultimately it kind of comes down to these american companies like facebook and amazon who i totally and i'm probably the only person in the crypto space that believe this but i totally see amazon coming up with their own crypto here pretty soon uh I know that sounds far fetched right now, but if Facebook creates their own token and it's a stable coin, uh, make no mistake, Amazon's going to come out with their own right afterwards. At that point, they'd be foolish not to. Um, so with that being said, it really is these American companies. And this is why David Marcus went uh, in front of Congress and he, he told all the people that were listening there, including ourselves. I remember him specifically saying this, that. America needs to be leading the way with um, digital currencies. And by them not getting on board with Facebook, they are putting themselves at a disadvantage for other competing cryptocurrencies uh, around the world. Uh, and that's not even including, you know, decentralized currencies like Bitcoin and all the other ones. Right. This is more than just a Libra and uh, a Chinese central bank digital currency. This has more to do with China and America and how they're competing with their own companies uh, abroad. Right. And so this is why uh, you have uh, Coindesk reporting on some interesting news here, especially coming from the People's Bank of China. Like they're sending out these PR press releases and it's obvious it's coming from China. And one of the recent ones that they sent out here was um they basically said that that some of their this new digital cryptocurrency they're coming out with here in China has test technical aspects. And when compared to Facebook, Facebook's Libra token, it doesn't even come close. So they say that their digital yawn will be able to be transferred between users without an account. 
and without a mobile or internet network. And uh, the report cites Mu, who is uh, Chang Chun Mu, uh, the, the previously the deputy director of the Payments and Settlement Division at the People's Bank of China. But they cite him as saying that uh, a user's mobile phone has a wallet and the digital currency can be transferred to another person by placing the two phones in physical contact. So it's probably using like NFC, right, or, or some type of um, you know low energy Bluetooth. Um, and then he, he says that even Libra can't do this. <laughs> make sure that want to make sure that that's pointed out. Uh, he also says that the, the People's Bank of China's digital currency also doesn't need a bank account to be used. And it's free from the control of the traditional bank account system. So that tells you that they're fully on board. China is they're fully on board uh, with Alibaba and, and Tencent kind of taking taking its pl- taking place of intermediaries uh, that would be like a central bank. Right. And ultimately, it comes down to endpoints. Right. And so People's Bank of China is trying to be an endpoint. And the only way that the only thing that's really stopping crypto and Bitcoin right now are these endpoints. And there's um, this is why um, this is why I like studying all types of cryptocurrencies in the space, because it leads you to understand how these work. I know specifically last year, Stellar Foundation was having a lot of trouble um, uh, trying to get on and off ramps. Uh, for their stellar token, regardless if the company or not the company or yeah, company or country wanted to create their own kind of uh, digital currency. Right. And they wanted to use stellar as its network. The problem with that was wasn't the fact that they you know needed to pass some laws to run that digital currency. The problem was the endpoints. So you could theoretically have one bank on one opposite end of that uh, be on board with digital currency. But somewhere down the line or one of the other 18 countries that it's trying to work with is not on board with that, right? And so they they keep those fees there. And the, the hardest part for cryptocurrency right now, exclusively with Bitcoin and other ones, is that um, this last mile is what they're calling it. And when you have uh, friction there on these on and off ramps to to exit out back into to fiat or exit on onto fiat, um, you you don't have that seamless kind of transactions like you would with like a you know like a PayPal or like a Square right you don't have those in place right so you still have these intermediaries kind of eating a big chunk of that transaction cost right so by China kind of implementing their own digital yawn this gets rid of it gets rid of these intermediaries and it focuses more on them providing alibaba and tencent a direct pipeline into their um digital yawn yeah and that's why you know this facebook libra token is important because Facebook's going to go out there and make all these on and off ramps. Of course, you have Stellar. They end up working with IBM and they launched this whole Worldwide to, to handle some of that. But we haven't seen any of the, the fruits from that labor. Um, hopefully, we'll find out later this year exactly how that's going. Um, we'll say one more thing. Make no mistake, though, Bitcoin being peer to peer is an exciting technology. And mostly all our other cryptos right now, you can you can pay with if you'd like, right? The problem is, is with acceptance. A lot of majority of the people out there haven't accepted cryptocurrency. That's going to take time, right? Uh, That's going to take a long time. But if the data that the UN is providing about where blockchain technology is headed, uh, if that is in fact true, and uh, you have somebody here like uh, Adam Back uh, talking about uh, Bitcoin uh, saying that uh, the price of $50,000 is not too far off for, for Bitcoin. 
um, then you kind of you can kind of see that adoption happening over time. And that's okay. It's good that we have an, uh, a better approach uh, to sound money, right? And uh, make no mistake, like all this geopolitical uncertainty that's happened over the past few years, you know, with, um, you know, what's going on with Hong Kong to Venezuela to what, uh, you know, China and the United States are doing when regards to trade war. Like this all shows shows that the, the economy of the world is very unstable uh, and, and this this instability is causing uh, people to to kind of exit out of the system and go right into Bitcoin because it holds a tremendous amount of store value over the long term. So in regards to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, I think I think we're just fine, <laughs> to be quite honest. I think we're better than just fine. I do want to touch on one thing, though, because I feel like it sounds very much one sided here. Right. Because, you know, I'm an American. I, I live in America. I'm reporting on stuff from China, but I have no understanding of what it's like to live there or to participate in those financial markets. So I need to get an outside opinion on that. Right. So. Take a listen to Zenin Cabron. He is one of the leading financial technology researchers and, and consulting guys in Asia. Uh, he's a part of Capronasia. And um, so if there's anybody that understands the implications of Facebook Libra and China Central Bank, uh, it's going to be this guy. Uh, take a listen.
the after after Bitcoin really started to to grow and take hold in China, so probably 2013, 2014, we we first started seeing kind of muted discussions from the government or mentions in in particular events of somebody from the PBOC or or uh, one of the other regulators talking about the potential of the government creating a competitor to Bitcoin or or a, a similar kind of model of a digital currency, and so. It, it, it's certainly something that's not simplistic to do. You know, it's it's one thing when you have a um, a platform like an Alipay that's that's controlling a certain percentage of all of the money in China. You know, all there's a certain percentage of the money that goes through the Alipay or the WeChat Pay platforms. But when you consider when you bring that into the context of both you know retail transactions and business transactions and government payouts and in monetary policy and and the fact that you know every renminbi that sits on an alipay wallet is backed up by one renminbi that's in a bank somewhere else and so the government can print more money or it can you know collect more of the money and take money off the market but with the central bank digital currency that all has has to be handled digitally and so the the challenges around that i i completely agree the end user adoption for most people, they probably wouldn't even notice the difference. You know, if if Alipay, if tomorrow Alipay and WeChat Pay integrated a central bank digital currency, most people wouldn't see the difference. You know, the, the front end is still the same. You're still swiping the QR code. Everything is else is happening just on the back end. And so I think that that it's it's more it's more the dynamics on the back end that are are challenging to overcome. So how do you how do you deal with those issues of of uh, monetary policy, how do you ensure the monetary supply is is neither here nor there? It's 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 really much more complicated on the back end for the government to kind of enable a system like that, and then rolling it out as well. I mean, we saw a couple of years ago when India tried to demonetize, that was the country was in shambles for a week as as banks were taking money off the market and certain bills were no longer accepted. And people were bringing money that had been hidden in mattresses into the banks just so they could get it counted. I mean, that, that, that was a big challenge. And, and it would be similarly challenging, you know, how do you transition to a central bank digital currency in a country as large as China with as many people as China? So I think certainly if we look globally at governments around the world, the Chinese government is probably further along or has at least invested the most in uh, the idea of the central bank digital currency. But then you know whether they whether libra has really pushed them to go faster or not i think a lot of it a lot of the rumblings that we've seen over the past couple of weeks have been a bit of a pr exercise to let the libra association know that hey you know first of all we're not open to libra here in china and second of all we're already working on a uh, another system that would be that would accomplish the similar similar goals so you know, I, I think certainly the government is is working towards that end and eventually will go in that direction. But, you know, whether Libra has sped up the process or not, it could just be marketing that the government has pushed out to say, OK, we are working on this faster now. But inevitably, that's the way it's going to go, certainly in China. I think too often we get distracted by shiny objects. And so, you know, there are certain companies like TransferWise is a good example. TransferWise, as far as I'm aware, their technology is not based on blockchain. It's very, it's a very basic business model, but they, they, they manage to make money off of it. You know, they make it very cheap for businesses and consumers to send money around the world. There's no blockchain involved. It's just a very, it, it's, it's looking at the current system and, and driving efficiencies out of that. And, and in many ways, 
you know, Alipay and WeChat Pay are the same way. It's just looking at points of friction. There's no blockchain involved in that. So it is, I mean, it is interesting to see that, you know, Libra, although it's not traditional blockchain in terms of the model, it's more of a, instead of a chain of transactions, it's more of a snapshot. So it's easy to think about like an Excel spreadsheet is kind of the Libra model. So you look at the Excel spreadsheet at any point and you look at the transactions rather than than examining a chain. But you know, I, I think it doesn't necessarily need to be blockchain to be better. We see a lot of examples out there of, of just traditional technology that's being used in different ways um, to, to remove these points of friction. I, I'm, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook myself. I, I've, I've tried to disconnect a little bit more from it uh, recently, and I don't have it on my phone and, and, and the like. But, you know, as, as much as I, whether I like or dislike the company that brought it up, I think it's a really innovative idea and I would love to see it gain adoption, but I think it's going to face a lot of challenges. You know, that one of the the amazing things about Bitcoin is that there's no central authority behind it. It's a decentralized network, but at the end of the day, Libra is centralized. I mean, there are companies that are associated with it. So the U.S. government, and we've seen this in the banking industry for many years, is that if the U.S. government wants to shut down these individual organizations or wants to cause fines, then they could do a lot to accomplish that. I mean, there was some talk that Facebook could be fined a million dollars a day if they ended up running Libra. The government could decide to do something like that. And and for a company like Facebook that's you know in billions and billions of revenue a year, maybe that's not a huge amount of money, but it, it's still there's there's a lot of barriers that they could put in place, and that's not the case with Bitcoin because you can't you can stop one Bitcoin exchange or as China has done and say all of the exchanges need to leave or shut down, but you can't stop Bitcoin itself. But it, it's kind of a different story with Libra because the the validators in this ecosystem are all functioning companies that could that are under the purview of some government around the world. And and I just think Libra is going to face a lot of challenges getting around those regulatory issues. I think the other thing to keep in mind as well is that we've never we've never been in, at least in modern history, we've never had a situation where the government has not been able to control the currency. So, you know, although there are negatives for uh, all the quantitative easing that happened over the past couple of years, it did keep us in theory as a global society from going into a much deeper funk after the global financial crisis than we did already. And and so governments around the world use these tools of uh, the fiscal and monetary tools to be able to adjust the amount of currency in circulation and and set set the tone and the stance interest rates as an example to to be able to control the economy in the best way that you know modern economic theory allows. But when you have something like Bitcoin or something that's, you know, is either deflationary or follows a different inflation path, that becomes very challenging. And and I think that's that's why the government has been a little bit anti-Bitcoin and potentially anti-Libra as well, is because, you know, it, it then loses control of those levers that it has used in the past to stabilize the economy when needed or to affect change when needed. So there are there are some challenges around that. But I think, you know, when we look at the idea of central bank digital currencies, it's it's definitely something that governments are very interested in. If you look at certain places like Sweden, there's actually pushback because they've gone too digital. You know, so there's certain uh, segments of the population, not that Sweden has a large financial ex- financially excluded population, but, you know, the elder generation that's more comfortable using cash, there's actually been pushback because so many of the transactions are digital and there's so little cash left that it's becoming a problem. 
but governments around the world, the, the, the transparency and the control that digital currency gives, whether in a, in a semi-centralized form like an Alipay or a WeChat or a completely centralized form like a, a central bank digital currency is something that's very attractive. And certainly, you know, I, I think 100 years from now, if not sooner, we'll all cash will not exist and we'll be using some form of digital currency in our wallets or phones or just even embedded in ourselves to, to make transactions. Uh, you know, cash will go away eventually, but it may take a couple of generations for that to comfortably happen for everybody. It's it comes down to a lot more about transparency and visibility. You know, the 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 U.S. dollar is is despite all of the efforts of the U.S. government, the U.S. dollar is one of the most accepted currencies around the world, and that also is one of the primary tools for money laundering and terrorism financing. Is is the U.S. dollar itself? And once a, a currency is in cash, once you have you know a stack of ten thousand U.S. dollars, you can pretty much take that anywhere in the world and get something for it. And it, it's very untraceable. You know, nobody knows that you had that particular set of bills that got you to ten thousand dollars. The renminbi is not as accepted globally, but certainly, you know, the, the government is keen to really have that level of transparency in terms of what people are doing with the money. Uh, obviously, because the renminbi is capital controlled as well, they want to make sure that they're controlling the inflows and outflows, which they have a pretty good handle on right now. But there's still a lot of gray market activities um, that we've seen over the years, with whether it be uh, gambling in Macau or China Union Pay scams or other ways of that we've seen uh, mainly outflows Chinese Chinese uh, individuals moving their money outside of China. But, you know, it brings more, a lot more visibility on those transactions. So I think any government around the world for the stated reasons of anti-money laundering and terrorism financing, but more tactically tax evasion and, and avoiding capital controls would be two of the bigger concerns. So I think that would provide a lot more visibility into that. It also gives them a lot more control, uh, you know. One of the things that has been mentioned is if China moved to a central bank digital currency, so much of the Chinese economy is dictated by bank lending. So when the Chinese government loosens monetary policy, it typically is reflected in the amount of money that banks can lend out. But the government doesn't really have a good feel for how that money is being lent or uh, if it's effective when it's being lent out. So again, you know, with with a central bank digital currency that the government has complete visibility into where all of those digital renminbi are, that allows them to control that much better. So it's not unlike other governments around the world. I think the you know if the U.S. government could immediately switch to a digital currency, it probably would as well uh, for many of the same reasons. And he's really touching on a lot of key points that I think uh, the vast majority of us here in the states just don't uh, or, or wouldn't even try to comprehend. You know, and, and that's the, the WeChat influence. That's the um, the data mining that they do in China. Um, but he's looking at it from how it's going to get implemented inside of China and how uh, in some ways it, it leads to more mass surveillance as somebody I would the way I would see it here in the West. So uh, really interesting stuff. Um, take a listen to his last key point on where the Chinese cryptocurrency is headed. I don't think it's China versus Libra. I think it's the renminbi versus the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's no secret that the, the the Chinese government has huge aspirations for the renminbi. And, you know, five years ago, you guys will remember this, the talk of the renminbi being the future trade currency and the internationalization mm -hmm. of the renminbi was everything that was being talked about. And that's kind of, although, 
you know, the Hong Kong, London, Toronto have emerged as renminbi trading centers or offshore renminbi centers, that transition to renminbi really hasn't happened. And, and there's historical reasons for that. I mean, the fact that oil is still priced in U.S. dollars gives U.S. dollars, you know, uh, quite a bit of strength and the U.S. government and then the fact that U.S. government has the largest military, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all these macroeconomic reasons. But mm. one of the aspects of Libra is that it's going to be backed by a reserve of multiple different currencies. And by any estimation, you know, 30 to 50 percent of that could potentially be the U.S. dollar. And so that would further entrench the U.S. dollar as kind of a global reserve currency and and take away the importance of the renminbi. Because I think you know, if the renminbi is part of that Libra basket, it's going to be a very small percentage as compared to the other the other currencies like the pound or the Japanese yen or the euro that might be in there. Mm. Um, so so I think it, it's not so much a China versus Libra, but a, a China versus U.S. dollar when we look at the competition angle of, of Libra and digital currency. Yeah, like they say, all roads lead back to the Fed. Um, really interesting insights uh, from Zenon on exactly what the implications are for these Chinese cryptocurrencies. In some ways, it's trying to circumvent the dollar, uh, which is crazy to think of, right? Uh, just on a macro scale. Uh, so I think I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear that this trade war has... Um, Cause a lot of people to kind of take interest into what's going on uh, macro-wise, right? Um, and data is starting to show that. Um, yeah, and this is coming from Bloomberg, and they're showing that the 30-day inversion correlation between Bitcoin and the yuan has reached a record low, and that's implying that the trade war has forced Chinese investors to adopt Bitcoin. So yeah, pretty bullish on the future of where you know Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are headed. Okay. You know, every time we do kind of one of these Thriller Insiders, I feel like I get uh, leveled up in a way <laughs> to understanding whatever particular topic we're diving into. Uh, today was China and their cryptocurrency and how the United States dollar is all um, uh, kind of competing with that. And, and uh, we're seeing this trade war kind of escalate. And uh, it's leading people that normally wouldn't do things uh, to do things, right? So. Yeah, it's just interesting as heck, and I hope to be reporting on more stuff like this here in the future. I hope you guys found it interesting. I hope you guys find it insightful. Um, but make no mistake, uh, Bitcoin here in the 2020s is going to be really, really important. And according to uh, United Nations documentation, it looks like they're expecting trillions of dollars to pour in to these exciting technologies. So um, I think as just a regular person who watches this space day to day, year to year, uh, we're heading in the right direction. See you guys tomorrow.